Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from the 1997 film Seven Years in Tibet. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Steven Spielberg was keeping John Williams very busy in 1997, giving the maestro two films to work on that year. After finishing his work on The Lost World, Williams had a little downtime as Spielberg was finishing work on Amistad. So, Williams figured a trip to Tibet would be a great diversion for a couple of months, and he accepted the job of composing the score to the film Seven Years in Tibet. I did not see this film in the theater when it was released in fall 1997, because it did not come to the smallish city of Colorado Springs, Colorado, where I was living at the time. When it came out on home video, there was little to no interest for me in watching the film or hearing the score, because the film didn't receive very good reviews. This would be the last film with the John Williams score that I did not see in theaters. And so, almost 23 years later, I'm approaching this film for this podcast with fresh eyes and ears. I wasn't too impressed with what I saw, and director Jean-Jacques Anou didn't give the music enough prominence in the film to allow me to give an immediate opinion once the movie ended. The standout piece of music in the score came in the end credits, and it's the piece of music that most fans of the score know well. But that is only four minutes of the score as used in the film, and based on my math, there really isn't more than 30 minutes of original score in seven years in Tibet. Now that might come as a surprise to those of you who know the music on the soundtrack CD very well. The CD has 75 minutes of music, including two versions of the end credits as bookends. If you watch the film, you will discover that almost all of the music found on the soundtrack CD does not appear in the film. It's difficult for me to explain what happened with the score. Most of it as presented in the film is mixed so low in the sound that I didn't know music was playing in some scenes until it was about halfway through. Perhaps the goal was to make the score very subliminal, and if so, it works very well in that regard. Also, I think Anu made some executive decisions about the score when Williams was done, some of which meant cutting music from scenes, music that would have enhanced many of the action-heavy scenes and lifted the crucial plot points of the film. There are often 15-minute stretches of the film without music, which is not a bad thing, but several scenes really felt out of place without musical accompaniment. As regular listeners of this podcast know, I try to analyze the scores presented in the finished cut of the film in question. But that's difficult, as I said, for seven years in Tibet, so I'm going to discuss the soundtrack presentation in a little more detail than usual, because it does give more justice to a better-than-average score. Before we get to that, though, here's a little background on the film itself. The story is largely based on the autobiography of Heinrich Herrer, an Austrian mountain climber who was captured by the British in 1944 while climbing a peak in what is now Pakistan. Heinrich and his fellow Austrian companions are taken to a prisoner of war camp and escape about five years later. Heinrich and another Austrian, Peter, plan to hike thousands of miles to Tibet, which will provide a sanctuary for them until the war ends. 
And that's where the two eventually live and where Heinrich befriends the young Dalai Lama. Sounds like a good story for a movie to me, and on paper it had promise. But casting Brad Pitt as Heinrich was not the right choice. The photographs I have seen of a younger Herrer look nothing like Brad Pitt, but of course, any studio will be willing to forego accuracy to cast one of the sexiest men alive. Pitt's accent comes and goes, and it would be the second film that year in which the Missouri-born actor had to use a foreign accent. He tried to portray an Irish terrorist in The Devil's Own, but all you could think about was Brad Pitt trying to play an Irishman. Critic Roger Ebert believed the film might have worked better if David Thewlis, who played Peter, had been cast as Heinrich. And I would have been on board with that. In any case, this was John Williams' first collaboration with French director Jean-Jacques Anou, who had made some decent films before this, such as Quest for Fire and The Name of the Rose. Anou accepted the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film in 1976 for the French film Black and White in Color, which I have seen in snippets but never all the way through. Anou has a great eye for detail, but I never found him to be great with getting dramatic performances from his actors. And none of Anu's previous films had great music scores either. Philippe Sard had previously scored Quest for Fire and The Bear for Anu, and I'm not sure if Sard's work on the French film On Guard kept him from committing to seven years in Tibet. Anu would have done well to reach out to Gabriel Yarrett, who had scored The Love and Wings of Courage for Anu. Yarrett had just won the Academy Award that spring in 1997 for the score to The English Patient, and I don't think he was working on anything after that. As much as my dislike of The English Patient goes deeper than Elaine Bennis's on Seinfeld, I do like portions of Yard's score in that movie. I think Yard would have done good work with a score for this film. So as was the case with The Accidental Tourist, I believe that John Williams had read the autobiography Seven Years in Tibet and lobbied to be a part of the film when it was greenlit by TriStar Pictures. That's the only explanation I can give for Williams taking the job over Yarrett, the hot composer of the time. Williams doesn't fall into the trap of creating music to fit the film's environments, particularly when it comes to writing Tibetan music using native instruments. Instead, pre-existing Tibetan music was used to fill in at several points in the score. Williams did put in some eastern flavor into his music, but that can only be heard on the soundtrack CD. There might be a small snippet of Williams' Tibetan-themed music in the film, but it is layered in with other pre-existing music, so it's hard to distinguish which is which sometimes. The majority of the score for Seven Years in Tibet relies heavily on Western melodies and orchestrations, even in the parts of his score played during the time in Tibet. The big draw for this score was bringing in the noted cellist Yo-Yo Ma to perform several solo pieces throughout, and he was so famous at the time that he managed to get his name in the opening credits right after John Williams' name. And if you remember from a couple of episodes ago, I said that Williams had composed the cello concerto for Yo-Yo Ma and had been looking for a movie to work with for Yo-Yo Ma, and this would be their first but not their last collaboration. And here's another major flaw of the score as heard in the film. Yo-Yo Ma's cello appears in the score once or twice besides the end credits. If you have heard the score on the soundtrack CD, you would like to think that Yo-Yo Ma was heard lots of times, 
more than Itzhak Perlman's violin in Schindler's List. But that's not the case. I've been unable to find out if all of Yo-Yo Ma's performances on the soundtrack CD were meant to be in the film, or if almost all of it was to appear exclusively on the CD. I'm not sure where most of Yo-Yo Ma's music was meant to go in the movie because the track titles are very vague, but its inclusion would have greatly elevated the score's profile in the film. Williams' score starts about six minutes into the film when Heinrich leaves behind his pregnant wife for a climbing expedition. It starts with a foreboding rhythm for the strings as Heinrich boards the train, telling us that it will be a long time before Heinrich sees his wife again. Once the train takes off, the woodwinds introduce us to the main theme, with Yo-Yo Ma's cello as backup before it takes over with a more serious B melody underneath Heinrich's narration. Like Heinrich himself, this main melody is a climber, reaching for the pinnacle of notes as it attempts to paint a romantic picture of a man that I thought was rather devoid of emotion in most of the film. The music for this scene is not on the soundtrack release. We will travel 5,000 miles. When we reach India, we will head for the Himalayas and the ninth highest peak on Earth, Nanga Parbet. Germany calls it Unzerberg, our mountain. Before us, four German expeditions attempted it. All failed. 11 climbers were killed in storms and avalanches. By now, the conquest of Nanga Parbet is a national obsession, a matter of German pride. July 29, 1939. We have already made Camp 4 at 22,000 feet. Overhead is the Rekiat Glacier and a difficult climb up the ice fall. The baby must be at least one month old now. I've been so confused and distracted. I can't climb with my usual confidence. The music on the CD that fills this spot uses a piano, then swells to a more robust presentation of the main theme as the film cuts to the climbers beginning their ascent and we see a picturesque view of the mountain. 
I'm reminded of the music Williams wrote for the mountain shots in the Iger Sanction here. The main theme of the film is quintessential Williams, full of lift and optimism. I do enjoy listening to it, and always have since hearing it as a concert suite on the 1999 Greatest Hits CD. But it does seem to lack the flavor that could have greatly enhanced the film. You could put this theme into just about any historical drama, such as Rosewood from earlier in the year. None of the mountain climbing scenes feature any music, including the harrowing scene in which Peter is dangling off the edge of a cliff with Heinrich holding desperately onto his rope to keep him from falling to his death. The music Williams wrote for this scene, I think, is on the CD because it's titled Peter's Rescue, and it creates a lot of edge-of-your-seat tension with the brass hits at the beginning and the percussion afterward. The scene itself is only about 75 seconds long, but the music on the CD runs 3 minutes and 45 seconds. I'm not sure if Williams expanded on his music for the CD, or if the scene was later edited, prompting the decision to remove the music altogether. But if this music had been put into the film, it would have been out of place with the rest of the feel of the score. And that would have been fine. There is a scene when Heinrich is reading a letter from his wife asking for a divorce while he is in the prisoner of war camp. 
There is nothing more in this moment in the music than the piano playing the main theme as we hear the letter's contents and voiceover. Heinrich reacts strongly to the letter by gripping the barbed wire fence outside in the rain, getting deep gashes in his hands. He tries to climb the fence and then crash through it with his body while soldiers outside point guns at him. Nothing more than strings in that moment, and not as strong as I expected them to be in such an extremely dramatic moment. This is probably the most emotion Heinrich exhibits in the movie, but John Williams doesn't lift the orchestra to make the scene more dramatic than it is. Actually, the sight of Brad Pitt trying to tear down a barbed wire fence is pretty dramatic enough. There aren't really any major score moments that stand out for the next hour and 20 minutes of the film. Some of it is pre-existing Tibetan music because they are now in Tibet. Some of it plays for less than a minute without much emotional impact, weaving the main theme in and out quietly. The moment when Hyrek decides to leave Tibet and says goodbye to the Dalai Lama at the end of the film has some decent music underneath, but it's not included on the soundtrack album. I won't play it here because there's too much dialogue and sound effects drowning out most of the music. Heinrich returns to Austria to meet his son, who was born while he was in the prisoner of war camp. After giving his son the Dalai Lama's music box, we cut forward to a few years later when father and son are climbing to the top of a mountain. Heinrich plants the Tibetan flag as the camera floats away from the two at the summit, strings flowing and swelling at various moments.
That's probably the best musical moment of the film, and it's very unfortunate that we had to wait two hours and ten minutes for it. The end credits music, as I mentioned before, is a truncated version of the first and last tracks of the CD. And this is the moment where Yo-Yo Ma has the chance to really show off. Thank you. 
There's another great track on the CD called Premonitions that is pretty much a Yo-Yo Ma solo piece, but it's not used in the film. I don't know if it had been intended for use in the film or is a piece written just for the CD, but it is glorious. So, what should we take away from the Seven Years in Tibet score? It's presented wonderfully on the soundtrack CD. But it was Jean-Jacques Anu's great shame that he did such an injustice to the score in the finished film. There's no documentation on this matter, and despite the high exposure the film got in its release, it's shocking that no one has been able to get to the bottom of the situation. I think many of the people who have reviewed this score in recent years have not seen the film because none of them comment on the differences between the soundtrack and the score in the film. As of the recording of this episode in May 2020, Anu is still living, but I have not seen any quotes from him on this film. It seems like he's pretty much disowned it. A lot of people around the world went to see Seven Years in Tibet when it was released in October 1997. The movie earned a decent $131 million worldwide, though only $36 million of that was earned in the United States. Its departure from the theaters in mid-November gave another movie about the Dalai Lama the chance to one-up seven years in Tibet. Martin Scorsese directed the film Kundun, which was focused solely on the life of the 14th Dalai Lama from his discovery as a toddler to his exile in India as an adult. I never thought the plot of Kundun was very interesting, but boy was the score fantastic. Because the point of view was completely from the eyes of the Dalai Lama, the music leaned heavily on Asian influences. Written by Philip Glass, a native of Baltimore who developed his own style of music, 
that features repetitive notes that somehow evoke exotic and romanticized moods while also developing tension in a few scenes. I absolutely love the score to Kundun and listen to it quite often. So in the battle of the dueling Dalai Lama movies, it's hard to say which picture won. Seven Years in Tibet made a lot more money, about $125 million more, but that's because the Chinese banned Kundun from theaters and convinced a few other Asian countries from showing it. But Kundun got better reviews and received four Oscar nominations, including one for Philip Glass's score. Seven Years in Tibet was completely shut out at the Oscars. The only time Williams and Glass competed together was at the Golden Globes, but of course, no one was beating James Horner and his work on the score to Titanic. So, folks, that's the history of John Williams' score for Seven Years in Tibet. I'm sure you'll agree that it's quite shocking that a John Williams score would get treated as such 20 years after he became a household name with Star Wars. As I think about it more, I wonder if Anu didn't like Williams' score, but didn't have the time to replace him or ask Williams to redo certain parts because he had probably moved on to his next film. If you're a strong devotee of this score based on what you have heard on the soundtrack CD, hold fast to that love of the score. I'm not trying to diminish that fondness, but now you have some backstory to go along with it, and we should be grateful that Williams had the foresight to at least walk away from the project with a well-produced soundtrack presentation. John Williams went from the mountains of Tibet to the courtrooms of pre-Civil War America for his next project, Amistad. It's another real-life story that brought Steven Spielberg back into the fray of telling the story of being black in the United States, and one that offered John Williams a very rich palette to craft his music. I'll be joined by Brian Martell for a discussion of that score on the next episode, and I look forward to you joining us for that. Until then, make sure to send me an email at jeffswim at aol.com with any comments about the show, or post a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks everybody for listening today, and the baton is down. <laughs>